0: Welcome to another episode of Dr. Doctor, the award-winning
1: radio show and podcast featuring your physician host, Dr. Tom McGovern and Dr. Andrew Mullally. And we and our guests here discuss relevant and health-related topics from an authentically Catholic perspective. Dr. Doctor is brought to you in part by the generous underwriting of CMF Curo. Learn more at mycatholichealthcare.org. Live your Catholic faith in your healthcare with CMF Curo.
0: Today, our guest will be heard across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Joining us will be Dr. Dave Hilger, a radiologist from Omaha, Nebraska. He's going to help us understand what radiology screening tests we should have for cancer and other diseases. Uh, you know Which ones are worth doing, which ones aren't.
1: And uh, Andrew, you love this topic. Why? I do. I don't know. I'm, I'm passionate about preventative care. Uh, it's a big part of what I do in family medicine. And uh, I also don't, I don't like being a sucker, and uh, I feel like the screening <laughs> tests cut both ways because there are some screening tests that are extremely important, um, and I'm thinking of, you know, one that I'm passionate about is a colonoscopy, and you see those advertised on TV relatively rarely. There's not a lot of people out there banging a drum about colon health, <laughs> which is very important. Um, I have noticed that, <laughs> but I don't <laughs> say, where, where are these commercials? Come on, <laughs> you know the Super Bowl, whatnot. Um, there's other screening tests out there, and uh, you see them advertised, whether it be TV, radio, other things. You see them advertised everywhere, and I'm thinking to myself that screening test may be useless, and it may be harmful, and it may be totally fake snake oil. And uh, people pay a lot of money for those, but then they skip the ones that are really important. And so it's something I'm passionate about because I I think a lot of people might not have the the experience to tell which ones are real and which ones are fake, what's worth paying for. And I I see a lot of people who pay money for these screening tests. They figure the more they pay for it, it's got to be more valuable where, in fact, a lot of the ones that are really worthwhile are totally covered by insurance because they're so important. Tom, you you got uh, a screening test story from not too long ago, right? Oh, gosh, how many years is it now? It's eight, 10 years ago?
0: you know, I'm thinking, you know, I'm a runner, I exercise, I work out, I watch my weight. I said, I'm probably in pretty good shape. So I saw advertisements all over town for these heart smart calcium scans. And it was only like $50 or $60. And there was one just, uh, you know, down the road, less than a block or so from our office. I said, what the heck, I'm going to try to do one of these heart smart calcium scans. And so I went and did it. And lo and behold, they came out with a score I wasn't very happy with. And so I had to get on the phone with uh, our friend we've had on the show, Dr. Dave Kaminskis, cardiologist, and said, Dave, what in the world's going on? I've got great cholesterol. You know, I don't have a bad uh, uh, heart history, uh, family history with early heart attacks or anything, and yet I've got this calcium. And he pointed out, you know, something called the prior probability is important with almost any test that you do. I right. mean, does does that ever enter into your thoughts, Andrew?
1: Well, it's, I think it's something that in medicine, a, a lot of physicians, we, are, we think about kind of on the fly, but we don't always take time to explain it to the patient. Um, and a recent example I had was someone had ordered themselves some cancer monitoring blood work. And ah. one of the 10 numbers they ordered was a smidge out of the normal range. That does not mean cancer. It does not mean you have cancer. That's a number that they use to monitor people who we know have cancer to see how much of it might be there. But if you test, you know, you run any blood test on 100 people, at least 5% of them are going to show up in the abnormal range statistically. And so it's kind of a problem. Yeah, we define
0: 95% of people having a normal and then 5% is abnormal. And, And so, yeah, some people who don't have a problem are going to fall into that abnormal. So- you know, my result put me in a quandary, you know. So, you know, my friend Dave says, you know, should I start uh, uh, a medicine or not? So, so I, I am on the medicine to make my good cholesterol outstanding cholesterol. But... <laughs> You know, not that and, you're an
1: overachiever, Tom, yeah, but uh, know, you probably could
0: put your numbers up against anybody, right? So <laughs> we're not <laughs> going to go there, Andrew. So, But we will ask if Hilger about that, you know, what's the utility of that? Because that is one of those radiology things, but it's marketed directly to consumers, uh, yeah. whereas a lot of other tests are marketed only by, well, marketed is a strong word, are recommended in the office by your physician and not on Super Bowl ads.
1: Yes. And, and that's really the main question. I mean, there's an element of it that, you know, what is most helpful for the patient? The other element is, is this test helpful even as a standalone test? Is it ever helpful? And then some of these things that people bring in to me during a wellness exam and want me to interpret, I want to tell them that I, I think this is uh, maybe witchcraft or, or voodoo and there's <laughs> no <laughs> foundation in the scientific method at all they come in thinking that they've got some specific problem that requires a treatment. I said, I don't think you do. So how we got to figure out how to separate all these and hopefully Dave can tell us, you know, what we need to do.
0: Yeah. And it's not a very attractive thing to have done because we're not treating some kind of symptom. We're not going to be feeling better
1: because we're doing this test. So I bet the motivation for doing this is pretty low. Oh, it's, it's hard to explain it to people. I mean, so many people say, um, you know, for breast imaging, oh, my, I don't have any breast pain. Well, that's not a prerequisite for cancer. <laughs> Most people with breast cancer don't have breast pain. And if or, you do have pain my, from breast cancer, it's pretty bad. <laughs> that's pretty bad. Same thing with colons. Oh, I've, I've been totally regular my whole life. I said, well, that actually has nothing to do with colon cancer whatsoever. <laughs> but uh, it's hard to talk people in, into screening. So hopefully with this episode, we can shed some light on the stuff that is very high yield, the stuff that is not very high yield, and how to think about them differently.
0: That sounds like a great plan from our resident family physician, Andrew Mulally. And that leads us into a nice segue for our medical trivia question of the day. The category unsurprisingly is cancer screening. The American Cancer Society website recommends the earliest form of cancer screening at the tender age of 25. What screening test does the American Cancer Society recommend be performed at that age and for what type of cancer as you know you're gonna to have to wait till the end of the show to get to the answer here on doctor doctor but after this break coming up we'll have with us dr dave hilger radiologist extraordinaire talking about the cancer screening tests and other screening tests you should consider doing We are back with our guest, Dr. Dave Hilger. Dave Hales from Omaha, Nebraska. He is a private practice radiologist who is now in his 40th year of practicing radiology. And for all that time, he's had a love for imaging, for finding breast cancer early, and then later on developed a great uh, affinity for also lung cancer screening. He has three children. He has six grandchildren, and he's been incredibly active with the Catholic Medical Association. He's the state director for the CMA in Nebraska. He's also the treasurer for the national organization, is on the National Executive Committee. Dave, welcome to Dr. Doctor.
2: Thank you, Tom. Yeah, and Andrew. So
0: so Dave, we're talking screening tests. What is a screening test and why should anybody care about them?
2: A screening test is um, a test to detect a disease before a person is aware that they have it. And the, per- the purpose of it is to find it find the disease early when it's more treatable and sometimes curable, pure and simple. And I, I call this secondary prevention as opposed to primary prevention, which is what you do by sleeping, eating, and doing all those things in, and eating well and exercising. Secondary prevention is finding an early disease and when you can do something about it.
1: Dave, there's there's a lot of people who are into preventative health, and they want to do everything possible, every screening test possible, to detect a problem. Is there any reason why we might not want to do that?
2: Oh, absolutely. Um, you know that some of the tests are proven to have efficacy. Um, if you want to do every test, there's some be- there's downsides to that test. And in the follow up, Doctor Brown's excellent episode. There's a risk and a benefit always. And I consider a risk and a benefit every time I look at a radiology test. So my job as a radiology, as a radiologist, is to optimize the benefit and to diminish the risk. And that includes incidental findings on a, you know, a screening study, whatever the case may be. So
0: why wouldn't we do every single screening test? possible. You know, if we want to find everything, why shouldn't I be screened every year? I mean, how do you find the sweet spot for who to screen and when to screen them?
2: Yeah. And that, and that leads into the, the, the topic of pretest probability that we're, we're testing people that have a higher risk of a particular disease. For instance, women of certain age have a risk of breast cancer. Men have a risk of, of prostate cancer, we all have a risk of colon cancer. We get into a certain age. These are tests that we can possibly detect. Others are silent insidious, such as pancreatic.
1: Yeah, so we don't have a screening test for every type of cancer.
2: No. You know, Dave, from
1: one of the things that, that we were kind of looking at and preparing for the show, we have obviously a responsibility to try and be healthy. Um, what is our responsibility as a Catholic to submit ourselves to any of these screening tests?
2: Yeah. And um, one of my favorite Bible co- quotes, and since I'm Catholic, I can't always tell you the verse or the, or the location <laughs> is, is that the, 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 that we are the temple of the Holy spirit, that we are stewards of our bodies. Number one, number two um, issue of justice you know, it's our responsibility to our family and other people to take care of our health because there's a cost to our family, you know, a cost to culture if it's something's found later rather than earlier. So sometimes we can't prevent it, but we can try.
0: Well, let's move into the area you probably take care of the most, and that's uh, breast cancer. You know, um, what studies tell us that it's worthwhile? checking early for breast cancer, and not just waiting until there's a lump or a symptom.
2: Yeah. And, and breast, the breast studies have been around a long time. There was a health insurance physical study in, in New York back in the 60s. The biggest studies that came to light were the Swedish studies. There was a Swedish two-county study. And Sweden um, has kind of socialized medicine, but they were able to really do a, what we call a double-blind study, where they have a control group a population. They divide them. We can't do this anymore, obviously. It, was, it would be uneth- unethical. But back then, they could. And, and they, they took a population of 40 to 69-year-olds and in two counties in Sweden, and they quickly found, in, within 10 years, 30% reduction in mortality women that were screened for breast cancer versus those that were not.
0: And how were they screened in that study?
2: By bre- annual mammography.
1: Annual, once a year, starting at age 40? Yes. Okay. Wow. You know, one of the things that I think can be confusing for folks is that sometimes recommendations change about um, how often something should be done or at what age. And, uh, you know, we we see that sometimes with with screening exams. Why is that?
2: Because we're scientists, we're doctors, we're always arguing and Trying to look at the data, and, and in the in the case of breast cancer, in all these screening studies, it's always a balance of benefit for risk. But what they don't often talk about is the cost in the equation. And so when you bring organizations in and government bodies, you know that is kind of the silent factor. Um, but um, so we're talking about a population. Doctor Brown mentioned this. You know, and the population is different than the individual. Um, there's three organizations. You want me to go into the three organizations on breast cancer that have had sure. recommendations? Yeah, the U.S. Preventive Task Force says start at 50 and go every other year. Per- now, it's important to emphasize this is average risk women, average risk. So, you know, Dr. Malali, your ju- you know, you know your patients better than. Any of these organizations. <laughs> and, and so, you know, and and my job is to help you. And uh, the Amer- American Cancer Society, who actually was pretty logical in this, said start at 45 and go every year. And then at 55, um, they switched to um, uh, biannual every other year. Uh, my organization, the American College of Radiology, is the most aggressive. We say start at 40. And go every year, and we don't have an endpoint. But a lot of people consider seventy-five the endpoint. The ace, I, uh, I have a heart. I, I think a lot of things. U.S. Preventive SAS Force is, has said is are pretty good. I, I qu- don't quite understand their reasoning on breast cancer because we see a lot of breast cancer in forty to fifty year year olds, and it is mm-hmm. devas- devastating. Yes, yeah, small it's, young families,
1: mm-hmm.
2: and it it breaks my heart it really does still does that's so,
1: one of the things that that i feel like it's it's hard for people to understand where to to look for recommendations when they change but probably individual assessments with their physicians the strongest way to do it
2: yes and and these are average risk patients
0: so who, who is a high-risk patient? How would somebody know if they're a high-risk patient? And they should definitely start at age 40 uh, and go annually.
2: You know, I can, I kind of divide them into minor and major risk factors. Early menarche, estrogen exposure. Um, I think long-term birth control use is probably sh- somewhere between a minor and a major risk factor. It's been on for a long time. Um, family history, there's a real pretty straightforward T- uh, question: You can ask somebody. Mm-hmm. Do you do you have primary family members like mother, or sister who have breast cancer? You know, un- an- uh, aunts and grandmothers aren't as important as mothers and sisters. Okay. And if they're and if they're premenopausal mother or sister, that jumps them up to another category right away. So uh, even before forty. So- uh, yeah, even if a 440, because a premenopausal mother or sister, they might be a genetic risk. Sure. Even if they, mm. if they haven't been tested for a BRCA gene, um, there's a really good model out there called. I I like this one, the Tyracusic. T y r e r. There's a lot of there's a lot of calculators. It's called the Ibis I B I S calculator. If you want to Google something, the reason I like it is because it's one of the few that has birth control. Um, hormones in it
0: as a risk factor
2: yeah i don't know why a lot of them excluded that one
0: so dave there's mammography but these there's these other tests called thermography or ultrasound or even three 3d mammography i mean where does that fit in the scheme for these women
2: okay so the radiologist society we we don't want to give up on the women that are 40 to 50 because we we just think they they deserve something so we're working on some of these other, other things that might mm-hmm. help. And the problem in that age group are dense breasts. They seem to have denser breasts. So the dense breast tissue can mask a breast cancer. And we won't be able to visualize it. And that it can be masked in up to 20 or 30% of cases. And so what a 3D breast does, or it's actually called digital tomosynthesis, it unmasks the underlying tissue the mm. dense tissue uh, it it has it increases the benefit and decreases the risk because there's fewer callbacks with 3d mammography so we're trying new methods and there and breast ultrasound it has a little higher risk because it has a few more it has more false positives and so we don't want to cause more biopsies unless you do they're, now they're developing an automated some automated ultrasound systems with um artificial intelligence, which will make that better in the future, but it's still an area that's being worked on. Thermography, I, I don't see any benefit. I don't. I When they ask me, it's, it's detecting temperature. And
1: sure. It, I, I've had some patients tell me that they're concerned about the radiation from mm-hmm. mammograms, and so they've gone for the thermography instead. It
2: sounds like you think that might not be a good idea. Okay, so I I think either Dr. Perrone or Dr. Brown might have mentioned that Um, we really work on radiation exposure. So let's look at relative risk. Um, The risk of having an X-ray is similar to taking a flight across the United States. A low-dose CAT scan has... A little bit more risk than a regular X-ray, maybe twice. I mean, it's a pretty low dose. A mammogram, depending what X-ray you're taking, uh, is maybe three times. So you know it might it might be equivalent to a month of background radiation that you're going to get anyway. You're going to get twice as much background radiation if you live in Denver as opposed to living on the coast. So because of
1: altitude, uh, being closer, closer. Yes,
2: and, and taking a taking an airline flight. So it's all relative risk. So these are not high risk. High. None of these are are high radiation. Do, rel- do we
1: ever hear of people getting breast cancer from mammograms? Is that a thing?
2: I I've never heard of somebody getting a. Um, a breast cancer from a mammogram It's uh, Dr. Brown talked about that. It's all theoretical based on, on the the atomic bomb in Nagasaki and Hiroshima and saying, what if you got one, one thousandth of that radiation and we don't even know if it's a linear relationship. So um, I I think now uh, on the other hand, uh, an an CT angiogram, which you might get if you came into the ER that's about 10 times. Uh, uh, that's 10 millisieverts compared to maybe 0.5 millisieverts for a mammogram. If people don't think twice about having a CTA chest for a pulmonary embolus, but it is much higher radiation. So we keep these screening tests risk to a minimum.
0: And what's that compared compared to the old-time fluoroscopy that they used to do in the 40s and 50s in shoe stores to look at the bones in your shoes. How high was that dose?
2: <laughs> that was very high. I cringed to think about it. That was so
0: dangerous. People didn't have a clue. So, final question about breast cancer. How how, how many lives is it saving? What evidence do we have that it's saving lives?
2: Well, for whatever reason the rate of breast cancer is increasing; it's a linear slope up. The rate of breast cancer deaths is decreasing; it's a linear slope down. Now, the radiologists think it's because we're finding it early. The oncologists think because they're treating it better. And it's, <laughs> <laughs> and it's probably both. So, it probably and it's easier to treat. And it's easier to treat when it's early. Good.
0: Lung cancer, that's your, your other great love. How often and who should be screened for lung cancer? Not everybody with a lung, whereas everybody with breast should be. Everybody with lungs does not need to be. Is that correct?
2: Yeah, and again, it's a, a 90% of lung cancer occurs in smokers. And so actually, the U.S. Preventative Services Task Force recommendations are really pretty good on this. They just came out with a new set, age 50, 75. Uh, with the 20 pack year history 20 year pack year history that's one one pack a day for 20 years uh within the last 15 years they should be screened once a year and only about 20 percent of the pop, of the at-risk population is currently being screened
1: why is that why why don't more people avail themselves to lung cancer screening
2: I, I think it's just a new a new kid on the block and we just we're just increasing the the uh, exposure and the insurance companies and Medicare are starting to take hold of it.
0: What? Cause they, they will pay for it then.
2: Yeah. They're, most of them are coming over now that the U S preventative services task force have said that. Got it. I so, know
1: in, in Indiana where we record, they passed a state law this year that said, if the preventative screening task force has an A or B recommendation, insurances have to cover it. So they're oh. legislating that. At this point, mm-hmm.
0: that doesn't sound unreasonable. So, if you stop smoking, though, over 15 years ago, there is no recommendation for this screening, correct? Correct. So, what test is recommended for the screening? Is it just a plain old chest X-ray?
2: No, we can't really see these small pulmonary nodules um, on a plain old chest X-ray. It's a it's a low dose CAT scan, and um, we're looking for pulmonary nodules, and we have. A number of recommendations when we find them. Uh, if you just to put it in perspective, the five-year survival rate of a lung cancer found just kind of on a chest X-ray or if somebody coming in without screening into Dr. Malali's office is twenty percent mm. on an overall. The five-year survival on a lung cancer found on a screening CT. The stats say it's 60 percent five-year survival still not great great but a lot better
1: oh that's substantial that
0: paints an incredibly good picture so that kind of almost answers the question you know has it been successful at prolonging lives it clearly has been um very good dave so um uh, next we can move on to colon cancer. And this is the one you know when I turned 50 it's like the one that my doctor brought up. All right, it's time. Why why was that an earlier kid on the block than lung cancer screening?
2: I don't know. I think it all deals with technology. We had we had colonoscop colonoscopes available.
0: Okay. And uh, A- and so that's the typical way to screen. But this has now bled over into the area of radiology. So, what does radiology have to do with colon cancer screening?
2: There is a test called a CT colonography, which I've done in the past. I don't currently do them. Um, I personally have my have a colonoscope uh, as a, as it's needed. The the advantage of the colonoscope is that you're able to treat while you're diagnosing. Yes. you take out the polyps. The CT colonoscopies are typically done in the in the centers that are doing them for people that can have a colonoscopy or they weren't or failed for some reason. And so there's just not that many people that are doing high volumes of them. We stopped doing them. There are people that do them and do a good job at them. Or in places that don't have a, a, a gastroenterologist. Very available. I, I had a friend who was a radiologist in the military, and he was doing a lot of them in, mm-hmm. in the in, in the military. But but it's mostly for failed. I mean, why would you do a test if there's another test that you can treat at the same time? Not take, a lot
1: of people like like the idea of the colonoscopy. I, I gotta know. tell you, <laughs> a lot of people. <laughs> it's a it's a tough sell. It's a tough sell in trying to tell people. I, I had one patient opt for a CT. Um, coloni- colonography, uh, because they just didn't, couldn't stomach the thought of doing uh, colonoscopy.
2: Mm-hmm. But
1: um, I, it's nice that there's so many options available. Another, another screening exam that we wanted to ask about was for prostate cancer. There seems to be a big disconnect between the ACR and the USPSTF. The ACR says regular screening is recommended after 55, but the USPSTF, Says that screening should be the exception rather than the rule. All guys have prostates, and for many people, they start bothering them as they get older.
2: What should we believe? You know, I haven't dived into the data on this, um, Andrew, Dr. Malali. Uh, <laughs> I I can just tell you that I'm having my PSA done every year, and some some people say the prostate is the breast the the male counterpart of the breast if we live long enough we're likely high probability of getting a prostate cancer and so i'd rather if it were me i'd rather find it early and know what i got but i i haven't really dived into the data and maybe you have more than i have on this and look at that the the is there a radiology test to check the prostate dave we are doing a lot of MR prostates. I don't do them personally. Wow. But yeah, and and we're working we work closely with the urologists on this because once their PSA starts going up, it, it ha- it's a sim- it's a test that has some similar characteristics to a breast MRI. It can show the show the urologist where to biopsy. They can monitor if it's a non-aggressive low Gleason score you know, and, and keep an eye on it over the years. Um, so we're, we're learning a lot. The prostate's an evolving area. And again, the technology is just coming around.
0: And that's a great place to take a break here on Dr. Doctor, Doctor, and we'll come back with more screening test cancers and other medical conditions on Dr. Doctor, Doctor right after the break.
1: And we are back with Dr. Doctor talking about screening tests, especially those involving radiology with Dr. Hilger here. You know, Dave, Tom was sharing a story uh, in the first quarter about the coronary artery calcium score and the idea that when it's marketed directly to patients and not necessarily going through their doctor, patients might not be in the best position to know, Hey, am I a good person to get this or not? Because after you do it, you have to deal with the information you've, you've learned. And, and sometimes maybe you wish you didn't even know that when it comes to the heart screening with the CT, how should we think about it?
2: You know, I have a, a, a I'm going to, I'm going to give some personal experience on this one. I think um, <laughs> I, I heard some personal experience. I'm, um, uh, my wife and I found out when I was in my 30s that I had a high cholesterol, and so maybe I was a bad doctor, but I didn't want to go on on statins. So I've been managing it with really pretty with my diet and exercise. And so this my other interest is is primary prevention. I have a strong interest in that. So when I was 50, some I, and my wife is is very into the the, the health health things, and so. Uh, when I was in fifty some, I had a coronary CT angiogram, which is a higher level test. Yes, I was I was learning how to do them, and I volunteered. Would you like to have one done? <laughs> uh, I raised my hand. I said, "Yes, I will." And without statins, I had found with diet and exercise, my coronaries were clean. I was I was it was like praise the Lord at that point, but I still have a high cholesterol. It's not a it's not a strong genetic predisposition. It's a it's kind of a a mild or moderate. So it's able to be controlled with diet and exercise. And so uh, recently, my doctor wanted me to go on statins again. And so I negotiated with him. So what can I do? What test can I have done? And we decided to do a couple things, a um, a, uh, cardiac echo, chest echo, and a coronary calcium score. And he said, if your test is good, then we'll let you pass on this one. And so I did it as just another, along with my lab tests, my other data, as just another assessment of my risk. And so that's my answer to the question. It's one piece of the puzzle. And Dr. Mullally and the family doctor and the primary care doctor have the whole thing together. All it shows Calcium. When coronary arteries heal, they calcify, so it's called hard plaque. It's not the soft plaque that is going to cause a heart attack. It's saw so, it's calcified hard plaque. It means that you do have the disease, you've healed it, but it's a risk factor. If your score is high, maybe you ought to modify your lifestyle a little bit or or take statins.
0: So, that- Dave, should consumers order this test themselves where possible, or should they only do it under the auspices of a doctor's care? What do you think?
2: Yeah, I I think this goes into a bunch of these things. Uh, What's the risk? The risk is if you have a low score, you have a false sense of security. Uh, If you have a high score, maybe it'll scare you enough to go see Dr. Malali. But... um, but if it's a low score or on some of these other tests, you could have a false sense of security because it's only one piece of the puzzle. So I think it needs to be done under the guidance of your primary doctor.
1: This this is the one that I always use as an example as well for the incidental findings, because at least the hospitals around here offer this CAT scan read by a wonderful radiologist for $50. And I say, I think they're bleeding on that. Well, probably not. They're probably making it up someplace else because how many people come back with some kind of nodule or something from from these directly marketed tests.
2: Yeah, and I heard you I'm I'm a big fan of the show. I heard that discussed on Dr. Brown's episode. So uh, I I agree. And you have to be careful what you what you do. You know, and then yeah. You know,
0: there's been another test that's been even marketed in in shopping malls, and that's an ultrasound test to see if people's carotid arteries in their neck that are feeding blood to the brain to see whether or not they're narrowed. What do you think about those tests, Dave?
2: You know, again, I'm, I'm trying to I try to put it from a thirty thousand foot viewpoint. Again, I'm if if they're positive, you know, I, I saw the data that you know you saw. Um, it's not recommended by the U.S. US Preventive Service Task Force right. because. The treatment is expensive and risk and can cause risk. And then again, if it's negative, what are the causes? What are the other causes of stroke? It's not the only cause. Right. So, and would you have a false sense of security if it's a if it's a low? You, you need to put it in full context of what your primary care doctor knows about you. And, and so, so again,
0: yeah. don't go do a test that. Your doctor doesn't have a reason to think is going to help you because it's, it's always the question, as Andrew likes to say, what are you going to do with the information?
1: It, it's interesting for, for me. I, I see now there's so many different programs out there, and I, I've had a whole rash of people coming in with these uh, screening test results, some of them ultrasound, some of them with pulse oximetry, looking for peripheral vascular disease in um, people with zero risks and zero symptoms. And the tests come back abnormal and these people are scared to death thinking that they have some, some major problem when they don't have any symptoms and no risks for it. And then it, it really, I, I see that as a huge risk for the over-screening as well because then I, I have to try and explain to them, no, this probably should never have been done, but it was it was triggered to be done either by some insurance process or um, by some financial incentive for the people who, who uh, are doing these in the malls and things like that.
2: Yeah, exactly right. You know, you got to look at the big picture, look at the whole person. So you don't see a
0: purpose for screening. Like some people have what's called peripheral artery disease. There's coronary artery disease in the heart where they are narrowed, but there is also peripheral arteries, especially in the thighs and legs that can be narrowed. Uh, Again, you would recommend only in the presence of symptoms or a reason a doctor thinks that they should be checked?
2: Well, and I, you know, I, I think, I think we're looking at, you know, broad studies versus the individual human being here and we also have to keep that in consideration. There's always the there's always a factor of serendipity. Mm-hmm. That so, that somebody might get one of those tests and it might scare them enough to go in to see Dr. Malali. And and they might have I mean it I mean they that's where they're supposed to go to interpret it. And they and it might help them find and he might find something important. So I don't think we can exclude that on an individual basis, but on a global, it 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 has it doesn't have proof. That is, I guess, yeah. you
1: know, Dave. One of the things that I'd like to to give listeners uh, in, from this show is kind of a list of things that they really should do. Pretty much everybody should, uh, and and maybe if there's a list of things they could think about when while talking to their doctor, you know, individualized. What would be kind of your top five things that everybody should go home and make sure they've already done?
2: Number one, uh, have your annual physical exam. Number two, maybe this would be number one. Look at your habits, your, your personal habits, how you you're eating, sleeping, exercising, and, and that you know that, that you're, you're really you're responsible for your health care. Um, listen to your spouse. That helped me a lot. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, I mean, I think I'm rewording that. I think um, consider yourself to be a steward of your health and your family's health. So, from a global perspective. And then, and I think the screening tests are kind of those the next several, you know, breast And which cancer.
0: ones? Which ones are the important ones that listeners should have?
2: Uh, breast cancer screening. Look at your personal family history. Consider it 40 especially if you do have, you know, some risk factors. Um, colonoscopy is a lifesaver um, for sure. And I, I'd have to look at the criteria again. I think it's 50. Dr. Andrew, would you okay. A lot of yeah. times
1: they're moving it to 45 now, yeah. which uh, nobody in their 40s likes to hear. But <laughs> the, with the, the, the folks who do colonoscopies have gotten so good at stopping cancer. The only people who are getting the really bad cancer is between 45 and 50. Mm-hmm. So here we go down to 45. But that's, I mean, that just shows the power of good screening.
2: Yeah. And those those are big ones. And, and you look at the population, if, if you do your annual physical exam, you're covering the prostate issue and your older males those are the common cancers that we can. Unless you guys can uh, go to your dermatologist once a year if you're a certain age, you know. They, if you have
0: the sun exposure and family history, it's not for everybody, according to the USPSTF.
1: Uh, do you Do you think the USPSTF is a good place to send people? Is that fair? I mean, even if it's imperfect,
2: I would. I would also look at the American Cancer Society. I think they do a really good job. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, they
0: do. And it's an easy to understand website. I was on it in preparing for the show and was impressed by the way they explain things, but yet had it referenced. So I would second that. Dave, we talked briefly about a fearsome type of cancer, pancreatic cancer. Nobody wants it. You want to find it early, but is there a screening way to find it?
2: No, there unfortunately isn't. And, uh, you know, my experience is a little different than Dr. Brown's because he you know, he sees pediatric patients, I see right. adult adult patients, and so the person that's getting a CAT scan in the age groups I see has a higher pretest probability. So, you know, we see pancreatic cancers from people that have really severe abdominal pain, mm. uh, some abdominal pain, but we also find them sometimes incidentally. Most of them are symptomatic, So, but we do not have, unfortunately, we do not have a screening test for a pancreatic.
0: Another nasty cancer is ovarian cancer. How is there, should anybody be screened for ovarian cancer?
2: Yes, again, if you have a family history, uh, genetic history, and by the way, there's a overlap between breast and ovarian. The genetics uh-huh. seem to overlap a little bit. So again, look at the, and I haven't looked that one up. I apologize, the, the, the ASGAC recommendations but we do ultrasounds and then there's also a lab test. Um, I think it's a carsoantibiotic antigen for for looking for that.
0: The USPSTF said what you said, Dave, uh, be screened if they have a genetic family cancer syndrome that puts them at risk for ovarian cancer. And like you said, would that be an ultrasound then?
2: Yes, yes.
1: Dave, what, what is the role of imaging for thyroid cancer prevention? So many people, you know, thyroid disease is one of the most common diseases that a medicine's prescribed for. People have nodules. Everybody likes to worry about them. Most of them aren't cancer. When should people have imaging?
2: Yeah. And again, I, I do agree with the USPS FT on this one. Um, we find a lot of thyroid nodules as the incidental findings on our our CAT scans and our, our ultrasounds. And Thyroid cancer is one of the, unfortunately, in most cases, the easiest to treat. And uh, mm-hmm. I, I, I'm i involved with thyroid cancer. I, I give radioactive iodine sometimes. Um, it's part of my practice. And we do find it. Often it's a, it's a lump in the neck found by a family pract- the the primary care doctor. But we're following a lot of thyroid nodules and probably generating a lot of biopsies. Just as incidental findings, so and you're doing the,
0: ultrasounds on those nodules. Yeah. So basically, it, if they have fluid, it's probably not cancer. If they don't have fluid, they might ha- be cancer. Is that sum it up? Right. right. So why we would have, a radiologist give radioactive iodine
2: to uh, somebody? We we do it once they have surgery to ablate the rest of the thyroid gland, so they can So be why, why do
0: you do that instead of a surgeon or an endocrinologist?
2: Because I'm the, only, I they don't have I am because I have the radiation training to handle radioactivity. So, so in other I, words, they we what, work. What we, you, we work together. The surgeon does the surgery, and then I do the radiation.
0: So, how does the radiation get there? How do you get it to the thyroid?
2: It's radioactive iodine.
0: So, is that through the blood? You inject it with a needle.
1: It's a pill. Oh, iodine always goes to the thyroid, right? Mm-hmm. Like water goes downhill. Yep. Okay.
2: Excellent point. Another little thing. So we're trying to figure all this stuff out because we have so many incidental findings. So this is just a little factoid. We started out with bi-RADS, which we we give to the family practice doctor if we see something, how often they should follow it. So we had bi-RADS. Now we have pi-RADS for the prostate. We have O-RADS for the ovary. Oh, and nice. we have TyRADS for the thyroid. <laughs> so, <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome.
1: And these these are recommendations that I live on and I love. Oh. And when I don't see them, I'm, I'm almost helpless sometimes. Uh, but they come at the end of the radiology report, and that's what all the family doctors skip down to to figure out if all the, the discussion is actually important or not, or incidental. And it's, it's a very nice summary. So for patients who are reviewing their own imaging, so much now pops up and they see it before I even get to see it. Looking at those will tell you right off, you know, this is definitely okay. This definitely needs follow-up. This one needs closer follow-up. I mean, that's a language that I think all of us can understand, and I really appreciate it.
2: Mm-hmm. And, and most thyroid nodules are benign. You know, you know, we do find occasional cancers, but but it's it's not a fear disease as much as some of the others.
1: Do you, do you, David, in your practice? Um, I see some patients bringing in a bioresonance information. <laughs> do you do that in your practice at all?
2: Uh, I haven't heard of that before. I heard it, but from the two of you, <laughs> I had to <a> look <laughs> on the internet. I I don't see any. Medical science—I don't see any science behind it that makes any sense. I don't know if I may be missing something. What do you? What are your thoughts on that? That would be
1: another one that maybe we'd recommend against. It's tough because (laughs) I think patients who seek out medical advice from a lot of different specialists and a lot of different uh, practitioners um, maybe weigh things equally, but especially in traditional kind of Western allopathic medicine. If you don't have some decent studies behind it, there's a joke we always said in med school. You know, uh, science without research is just witchcraft. And so, if, <laughs> if you don't have a couple good studies to say that this is definitely a good idea, um, it, it, it might be neutral or even a bad idea, and you you couldn't prove one way or another.
0: Dave, in our last minute, what are final words would you would you like to share with our listeners?
2: Well. I'm a fan of your show. So thank you for letting me have the opportunity to be here. I, I listen to a lot of episodes and going back to bioresonance, I think there's a placebo effect there and sure. and, the, and the mind and, and possible. You might be better off listening to Kevin Majors than having a bioresonance.
1: <laughs> I think, I think I get better every time I hear Kevin, I say, gee whiz, i got something else I
2: can, can yeah. work on. Yeah. And, There's just a little quote, a little quote that I would like to share, Um, and it's it's a little trivia as well. If I have a chance, that that prevention is better than healing because it saves a laboring of being sick, and Mm. uh, that by Thomas Adams. And so my trivia for you is, what is Thomas Adams most famous for? Back in the he invent, he's a scientist and an inventor who invented. Chewing gum. Chewing gum. Wow. Very good. Thank you, Dave. And on (laughs) that note, well, thank you for being
0: an informative guest, more informative than usual with your trivia question here on Dr. Doctor. Thanks so much for being with us.
1: And we are back with Dr. Doctor. And uh, I love playing around in the preventative care sandbox. This is one (laughs) of my world Uh, things that, you know, Tom has a wonderful trivia question about preventative care.
0: Yes. The American Cancer Society website recommends the earliest form of cancer screening at the age of 25. Mm -hmm. What kind of cancer is it? And it's cervical cancer in women. And so all women starting at the age of 25 are recommended to have a scraping of the cervix. And I guess with that scraping now, back when I was in training, they were just doing one thing with it, a pap smear, looking at it under the microscope. But there's a second thing they're doing with it, isn't there, Andrew?
1: They are. Now they're also looking with the same sample for HPV, which is the virus that causes the vast, vast majority of these cancers. And if you have a normal pap smear and the normal HPV screening, uh, you can actually go longer in between pap smears. Not not to say to go longer between exams necessarily, but you're a much lower risk. And so I find it very reassuring for patients. And so I think uh, I'd encourage everybody to do that for sure.
0: Well, thank you, Andrew. And now, what do you think are the top three takeaways for
1: this episode with Dave? It's hard to put it into three. And I don't know if I'm just all fired up about this or what. But um, (laughs) I would say, number one, not all screening tests are created equal. Some are good and some are bad. And you got to talk to your doctor. Uh, Number two, the idea of pre-test probability. Um, if, If we did a prostate blood test on a lady, it doesn't matter what the blood test says. She doesn't have a prostate, so it's useless. Other things with lung cancer and heart screening that we talked about, it's got to be individualized. So talk to your doctor, as Dave said, go in for an annual wellness and talk about what's age appropriate. And then I'd say number three, is the, the website for the United States Preventative Screening Task Force and the American Cancer Society website. Slightly different recommendations, but both very good. And if you're prepping for your physical exam, that'll give you some study material so you'll know what to ask about.
0: Yes. And I guess there are a couple of uh, screening tests that are just based on age and sex. That would be breast cancer screening, uh, you know, for women, 45 or more, 50 or more, or 40 or more, right? At 40. And then colonoscopy everybody with a colon
1: at age 50, but now moving downwards toward 45. 45 and 10 years younger than the youngest relative. So if you have a relative who had colon cancer at 48, you should start at 38. And so there's definitely a lot of intricacies if you have a a family history or you're high risk. And those recommendations in general are for average risk people, the 45 uh, for colons.
0: So go back to uh, top three takeaway number one, talk to your doctor. They're there for a purpose. They know more than we do about the best way to take care of our health and find disease early.
1: And if your doctor says you should go for a screening exam, I would seriously think about doing it. It really is not as big of a deal as you probably think it is, and it will give you a lot of peace of mind. And you can know the thing I like a lot about a lot of these is it gives you confidence moving forward. We're not necessarily looking back at at things that have happened all the time. That's only if you find something. If it's normal, we can anticipate. You don't have to worry about this for several years. So please go in and do your screening exams. It's it's worth it.
0: Great advice, Andrew. Thank you, listeners, for being with us for another episode of Dr. Doctor, the award-winning radio program and podcast hosted by members of the Catholic Medical Association. Please share the good news of Dr. Doctor with a friend and invite them to listen on their favorite podcast
1: app. And you can find all of our episodes on our website, drdoctor.org. And actually, if you wonder what Tom McGovern looks like, you can go on there and actually see <laughs> video now of the, and Andrew the podcast. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're trying to videocast thing. So check out drdoctor.org. For those who want to dive deeper into some of our topics, we have bonus links and information at the top of the page. Just click latest. This is Dr. Tom McGovern. And Dr. Andrew Mullally, and we'll be here. We're signing off until your next (laughs) dose of Dr. Doctor.
2: The views expressed on Dr. Doctor do not necessarily represent those of your co-host. Have a question for our doctors or a topic you'd like to hear about? Call or text your questions to the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598 or fill out the form at drdoctor.org. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Dr. Doctor Show and tune in for new episodes every Friday. Plus, find all our past episodes at DrDoctor.org.
1: This show is a production of the Spoke Street Media Podcast Network. For more great podcasts, visit SpokeStreet.com.